Uh, Dear Lord, uh, we're thankful, Lord, for so many things in the walk that we have with Christ, the, the grace you give us on a daily basis, and the patience you have with us in our, our days of uh, struggle. We thank you, Father, that uh, your judgment has fallen on your Son and not us in those days of struggle. I pray, Father, that that reminder would give us good cause to uh, think twice about our wandering and to pull us back to you in a way that is... Uh, lasting. And as we read a story, Father, about how you will judge and who you will judge and how that began even before the foundations of the earth itself, Father, let that also be a reminder to us of how important obedience is to you. And uh, though we could never measure up to it in our sinful condition, Father, and for that reason we have grace, nonetheless, uh, we cannot use what you've given us in your mercy as excuse to do as we please, and we know that. So we thank you, Father, that your grace abounds all the more for our sin and gives us good cause, Father, to seek to please you, knowing that there is no condemnation when we come before you. We thank you, Father, for your word that teaches us all these things. And, Father, give us a heart that wants to share these things with those we may encounter during our day and our week. What a shame it would be, Father, to have these things revealed to us for all that was required in making it available only to have us keep it to ourselves. So help us share what we learn, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's jump back into what I think is one of the most fascinating chapters in all Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament, maybe in all the Bible. And it's chapter 28 of Ezekiel. We're midway through that chapter. Uh, this is part of his declaration of judgments against Tyre, the, t- the city-state of Tyre, one of his, uh, Israel's historic enemies. This section on Tyre runs, as you remember, from chapters 26 through 28, so we're near the end of it. The first two and a half of those three chapters have dealt with the city, with its people. Last time we saw it deal with the leader of that city. Tyre being a city-state, a single settlement, it was settled on a rocky island about a kilometer off the shore of Lebanon, present-day Lebanon, and we remember it had those high walls that protected it that go all the way down to the sea at the edge of the of the island, and as a result, it was in a perfect condition for trading and sailing. It had a wonderful harbor, but it was also well protected and practically impenetrable. And so, throughout the centuries, it became a trading power. It became renowned for its strength. It was the envy of the world, and for all those reasons we've studied, the Lord has said that Tyre would now fall to God's judgment because of their pride and because of their wealth and the way those things conspired to deceive the people's hearts. They looked at all their wealth, they looked at their power, and they decided, well, they were captains of their own fate. And they believed that they had accumulated all that wealth, that they had ruled commerce in the way that they had because they were inherently superior to other people. And at the top of the heap of that arrogance was the king of Tyre, the man who ruled the city. He amassed wealth and power at an astounding rate. And so the Lord, when he spoke through Ezekiel, said to that man uh, and his successors and predecessors, for that matter, that that city-state would be brought low, it would be robbed of its wealth, and its power would be taken away, its influence would be taken away, the people would perish in the sea, and all of that, he says, because of their pride. And last week, at the beginning of chapter 28, we studied the prince of Tyre, as Ezekiel calls him, which we came to learn is the man who ruled the city, or the king of the city, basically, being judged, and not just one particular king, but in general, the leaders of that city-state. But then in chapter 28, verse 11... The gears shifted in a major way. Uh, Though the text was still speaking about Tyre, it starts to reference a very different and new character in the story. And you notice the switch in verse 11 because now we start hearing about a character called the king of Tyre versus the prince of Tyre earlier. And yet we already have established that that prince earlier was the actual king of the city. So what is the king then, if it's not the one who uh, ruled the city? Well, we find out that in this story, starting in verse 11, of a king of Tyre, there's a story here of privilege leading to pride, leading to a fall into judgment, and then into destruction. And that parallels very closely the story of the prince that we just studied. The same pattern exists for both. But although the outline was very similar to the earlier one in the first ten verses, it goes on to deviate in some different ways, some major ways. And this new character now we find at the beginning serving in the throne room of God in a very special way. 
And when his fall took place, it shook both heaven and earth. And that told us right up front that whoever this king of Tyre is, it's no ordinary individual, it's no ordinary ruler of the city, it's not just another human character. And as we learned last week, it's a reference to Satan. So the king of Tyre is a description of Satan, Satan's the spiritual authority that was operating behind the scenes invisibly. So in that regard, you have the prince versus a king, the man on the ground versus the real power behind the scenes. And that's the distinction being made in this chapter. Satan is the one who corrupts the hearts of the people in this city, among any city. He drives their opposition to God. He drives their opposition to the people of God, to Israel. And so as the Lord is promising Israel in this section of the book to judge all the enemies of Israel, all the historic enemies of Israel, we're studying, as you remember, seven of them in total. We're on number five right here. As he's doing this, he wants Israel to know that the spiritual enemy of God's people will also be judged. Not just the human agents that he has used over the centuries, but he himself, the author of sin, the father of lies. We read the entire lamentation last time, chapter 28, all the way through both the prince and the king. Uh, But I only studied us through the first part of it. So tonight what I want to do is I'm going to reread the whole section of the king of Tyre this time, the second half which is the half we're on right now. And uh, we're going to look through some of what we've already studied, partly for recap, partly because it still has bearing on what we want to do tonight. And then we'll move forward in our study from there. So let's pick up in verse 11 again. Again, this is the one now speaking of the king of Tyre. And the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel in verse 11. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. And therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. All right, so last week we got to about the first part of verse 16. Uh, and before we go back to what that point in the text and go forward from there, let's, let's remember now what we've learned through the first set of verses getting into uh, verse 16. We learned that first, uh, Satan's or- we learned his, his origins. We learned Satan's origins. Origins, yes. We learned his appearance. We learned his intelligence. And we learned his abode. Okay? So we learned he was created to be the wisest and the most beautiful creature in all creation. That's the testimony of Ezekiel 28. He was adorned, we're told, with every precious jewel, resulting in a brilliant appearance. I said, last week I said it kind of looks like he would have, like a disco ball. Every time light hit him, it would have flashed in every direction, right? He's literally wearing some kind of a adornment that includes all of those precious stones, all nine of them. And they're all set in golden sockets. So, I mean, there's nothing more beautiful at this point. That reminds us of what Paul says about the angel of light, Satan appearing as such to us, right? Um, And then we're told he begins his existence in Eden, the garden of God. Now, as we explained last week, this is not the Eden of earth, right? The Eden of earth is the garden of Adam. This is the Eden of heaven, the garden of God, which follows in the thing we've studied all through the first half of this chapter, which is that there is a pattern of things on earth given to, to us, as Moses received it, that is reflective of what is in heaven. The tabernacle, the implements, and even now the garden 
were all patterned off things that exist in heaven. And so there was a, a garden, as you would call it, in heaven. But this garden is not like the one that Adam lived in. For one thing, it has stones of fire in it, as you can see, which parallels other things we noticed in the scriptures. Uh, in verse 14, Satan was on the holy mountain of God. That's the Mount Zion that's in heaven, not the Mount Zion that we use in reference to Israel. Uh, we talked last time about the fact that when you see the 144,000 having died and been purchased from the earth and standing with Christ on Mount Zion in chapter 14 of Revelation, where is Jesus at that point? He's in heaven. Where are they? In heaven. Where's this Mount Zion then? In heaven. All right, there's a heavenly Mount Zion on which, again, earthly things are patterned. So he's in that place, the place of God's throne. There's, he's in the midst of burning stones of fire, which parallels other scripture we've seen that describe the throne room of God as having burning stones of fire on the ground in front of the throne room. So all of these things point us in the same direction consistently. It's a discussion about Satan, his origins, his appearance, all of this in the place of the throne room of God. That's where this story starts. And as we're going to see later tonight, Ezekiel says Satan was cast down from this place to the earth after he sins, which is further confirmation that what we're studying here is prior to the Garden of Eden on earth prior to when he ends up on earth where Adam and woman are in that garden. So we're still at that earlier point in history. We don't know if the earth has even been created yet or not at this point. All right, then we learned about Satan's occupation prior to the fall. This might have been, perhaps for some of you, the, be the biggest revelation of all from last week, that Satan's job, his appointed role in heaven prior to the fall, was, as we're told in verse 14, the anointed covering cherub. And there, that phrase, the covering cherub, is the phrase that the Bible gives for the figures, the figurines, that guarded the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. They're the pieces of gold, the gold cherubim that protected the top of the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. And God's glory, the Shekinah glory of God, would appear underneath it in the Holy of Holies, right? Remembering again that everything on earth is patterned on things in heaven, we come to understand that what Moses was being given as his pattern was based on what God had set up originally, which included Satan acting as the covering cherub. Those covering cherub carved into the golden mercy seat with their wings protecting the glory of God are patterned on what Satan was assigned to do for God in the Holy of Holies in heaven. So cherubim are angels created by God to guard his glory. And Satan's original trade, his orig original occupation, was to be the cherub guarding God's glory on the mercy seat. Is there a bigger irony in all of creation? So day by day, Satan stood guard as the closest created thing to the glory of God. Nothing created was any closer to the glory of God than Satan was. And his privileged position, we were told in verse 16, was the very source of his downfall. It says, by the abundance of Satan's trade, you could hear it like this, by the abundance of his high occupation, by the privilege of his role, it caused him to be prideful and arrogant. Much like the human king, remember this description in, in the second half parallels what we heard about the, king, the prince of Tyre, which is the human king, in the first half. He too was being judged because his great power and wealth led him to a place of pride and of thinking that he was a god, it says. Let it go to his head. Well, eventually, Satan's pride led him to sin against God. In verse 15, we're told that unrighteousness was found in him, which is to say sin originated in the heart of, of Satan. His sinful heart brought him to violence, and though we don't know what violent act resulted from his pride, I suggested one to you last week. The possibility that we know throughout history, Satan has sought to take the place of God. Uh, there are several instances in Scripture in which he or his agents seat themselves or try to seat themselves in the place of God. You have Antiochus Epiphanes from the times of the Greeks. You have the Antichrist himself said to do this in the time of tribulation. Uh, he has tried to usurp God's power by destroying the Jews at every chance he could get and turning their attention to him instead of to God. With that knowledge, we could perhaps surmise that that pattern didn't start 
with Satan on earth. It actually traces all the way back to the very beginning of the whole thing, that it was while he was guarding the glory of God on the mercy seat that the idea rested in his heart that he could be God. And that he decided to take the mercy seat by force, perhaps, or to take the throne by force, to seat himself in the place that he was guarding. That might have been the violent act he took. In any case, whatever it was, it resulted in the Lord casting him down, which is where we pick up tonight. Notice in verse 16, that after Satan sinned against God, he was cast down from the mountain of God in heaven. He's removed, it says, from the stones of fire. All of this is further confirmation for us that we are moving now from a place that was not earth originally down now to the earth. Right? So that confirms for us that we were not talking about the Eden on earth all along. We've been talking about some different place. Now he's going to earth. And in verse 17, likewise, we're told Satan is cast to the ground because he was corrupted by his beauty and splendor. His beautiful appearance gave him reason to think he was inherently powerful and worthy of authority and privilege, much like the king of, or the prince of Tyre thought that he was inherently wealthy and powerful, not that it had come from God. And as we read earlier, his position of guarding the glory of God puffed him up. But the phrase at the end of the, sec- uh, the uh, End of the first half of 17, where it says that it's, his splendor also corrupted him. Um, in literal terms, it reads in the Hebrew, corrupted wisdom because of brightness. I think the reference to brightness refers to the glory of God, which Satan guarded. It's already said he, he was puffed up by his beauty. And then I think it adds also by the brightness. That is, because he stood so close to it, It corrupted his wisdom, leading him to think he could replace God, that he could be in that place, perhaps. So the Lord cast Satan down, it says, as profane. The word in profane just means unholy. It means impure, unworthy to remain in the presence of God. He was cast down because now he was profane. He had to be cast out. And now, to this point in the narrative, I'm just pausing here for a moment. You've got sort of the the speed reader here version of all of that, because we covered so much of it last week. All right, so now we have these events in our mind, but keep in mind, everything you've studied to this point is all past history. It's all past tense. It was not just past for us, it was past for them. Even in the time Ezekiel's presenting these words to Israel, it was history for them too, okay? These things happened even before Adam and woman met him, right? So this part of Satan's story is not the judgment God has promised to uh, Israel's enemies because this has already happened. Where's the promised judgment? Well, that picks up here. Now as we move ahead to the next step of that judgment, which begins in the second half of verse 17, now we've reached the point of where God is going to add now to the past history with future promises of judgment. The Lord says he's going to put Satan before kings that they might see him brought low. Now, how do I know this is future? How do I know this is the point where you draw the line? Because we know that that cannot refer to the immediate aftermath of the fall of Satan. Because when Satan fell, there were no human beings, much less any kings, right? So it's not as though the casting down of Satan at the moment of his fall is the same moment when he was put before kings. That's not, that doesn't follow, right? There's a, there's a gap there, all right? That gap is where the past starts to look toward the future. And so the narrative is transitioned in that respect. And so what it means for us as a reader is we now have to try to understand what period of history has the text now jumped to seamlessly in the way it's written, I get it, but the facts on the page clearly indicate to us we have to move forward to some future date. Going to the next verse, the narrative will initially take a step back again before moving forward further, and that can further complicate your interpretation. You just have to follow as it goes. So in verse, the next verse there, in verse uh, 18, you see it says, the Lord repeats, Satan's fall was the result of his unrighteousness, the result of his... Uh, arrogance in his trade, and so on. Um, and then as a result, it says he profaned his sanctuaries. Now, the sanctuaries refer again to the heavenly tabernacle. Remember last week in Hebrews 9, we studied that when Jesus died and was resurrected, we're told that he entered into the holy place in heaven, and his blood was used in the moment to cleanse the holy place. So that's why Mary couldn't touch him when he was first resurrected. He says, I've not yet ascended. He had to go in body to the tabernacle and take somehow blood came out of his body into a basin and they used it to sprinkle the tabernacle. That's what Hebrews 9 says. So that had to be cleansed because it was profaned by the one who was in it originally and caused it to become profane. And it stayed profane, apparently, from the beginning of the creation all the way until Christ's death and resurrection. Then he went and cleansed it for us. He made it 
holy again. Then the narrative returns at the second half of verse 18 to the future. And here's where we start to get clues as to when in the future that judgment starts to happen. He says he brought fire from the midst of Satan. Now, that settles it, doesn't it? I know, it's a bit cryptic. But I want you to notice that this fire will consume Satan, ultimately turning him to ashes, and kings will be astonished. Now, that passage has been written in a very poetic form. It's actually rendered in your text, probably, in a poetic formatting, just to reflect that. And in in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is their equivalent to rhyme for us. So it's intentionally paralleling what has been said about the Prince of Tyre in the original half, first half of this chapter. If you go back and look, similar things are said there, and they're just being repeated here for parallelism's sake, which makes it a little hard to understand because it's not being written quite as plainly as it would have been otherwise. But because we have other scripture, we're saved in that respect. If I had nothing else to go by, I wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Thankfully, we have other scripture that describes these moments, and when you lay them up against what we're studying here, it it makes sense. All right? You're going to do that as homework, right? Well, first, I'll I'll help you out. First, we know that in a day to come, according to scripture, that during the middle of tribulation, during the middle of a seven-year period on earth called tribulation, that is yet to come, that the Lord begins to carry out a plan of destroying Satan. He takes a couple steps to get there, and it begins principally at the midpoint of tribulation, three and a half years into the seven. It's at that moment that for the first time in, in the history of the creation, God bars Satan from entry or from access to the heavenly throne room. It's in Revelation twelve nine. We hear this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So what you see happening, and this is, uh, we're going to get into several things in this area of Scripture which are not going to satisfy you, so I'm going to continually remind you to go listen to our Revelation study online for the full story. But uh, what you need I can give you tonight, that at this moment in Revelation, we're at the midpoint of tribulation. You'll have to take my word for that. But you're at the midpoint of tribulation. Uh, At that future point in history, you'll find the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy beginning concerning Satan being cast down to the ground before kings. Because even now he has been cast down in the sense that he no longer has his place of honor. He no longer has his job. Okay, so you could say he's been fired. But for reasons I'll explain in a minute, God still lets him show up at his workplace once in a while. So he still has the key card, but he doesn't have a paycheck. He just shows up. All right? And he shows up with a chip on his shoulder and with the name of undermining his replacements. All right? Sounds like your workplace, right? Um, I hope not. But... In the meantime, as we sit today, as Ezekiel did in his day, though he's no longer allowed to do what he did, he's been cast down, he's been made profane, etc., he still has a permission by God to roam to and fro on the earth and to have access to the throne room. You may remember that from Job as he enters into the throne room in that story. In Job 1.6, at the beginning of that story, we hear this, Now there was a day when the sons of God, which is a reference to the angels of heaven, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So you have the angels presenting themselves before God in some respect for some reason, and Satan is among them. Now notice, he's not presenting himself before God like they are. Since he's fallen, he can no longer stand before God in that way. Instead, he just moves among the angels. I like to think of him as kind of skulking and and hiding behind their figures and sort of in the background, but he's in the room, right? And by his own testimony to God's question, he can move freely, both there and on earth. But what Revelation 12 tells us is there is a day coming at the midpoint of tribulation when the days of freedom for Satan end. All right, those days are numbered. And in that day, when it comes, he will be once and forever barred from having access to God in the throne room evermore. In that day, Revelation 12 says, it marks a new chapter of horror for the inhabitants of earth. 
that are still there. Because on that day, Satan faces the reality that his time is short. That is, until that day, he has held out some kind of bizarre hope that he has some way to avoid the fate that God has appointed to him. But on that day, the reality of his, of his impending destruction hits home. And at that stage, being barred from heaven, I think of him like a, an angry caged animal just leading him to produce even more destruction on earth in a kind of wrathful vengeance. And we know from the rest of Revelation, from chapter 12 onward, that he does begin to persecute the world, especially Jews and Christians, and he has a ferocity about it you've never seen before. And that persecution leads the world into the very end of the age, when Jesus returns. And at that return, at the end, the Lord destroys Satan. He brings Satan to an end, in a sense. At that moment, we're told in Revelation 20 that Satan is caught, bound, and placed in the abyss, which is a place of torment for angels similar to Hades. We studied this, if you remember, a few chapters back. So in the center of the earth, right below our feet, literally below our feet, literally in the center of the earth, there is a place that is very hot. Scientists tell you the center of the earth, very hot. They're teaching biblical truth. And in that place is the holding of all the souls of all those who have died without faith. We call it hell or Hades. It's still there and it's filling up more by the hour. But there's another companion place of similar design, but strictly for demon angels that God has relegated to, to, to be there. Most demon angels are not there, obviously. But some have been consigned there, particularly the ones who were responsible for the sin that led to the flood. Okay? And we're told that in a day to come, Satan himself will be bound there with the rest of the angels that followed him. We hear that in Revelation 20, verse 1. This is at the second coming of Christ. This is at the end of tribulation. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So, back to Ezekiel for a moment. Ezekiel has said there's going to be a moment when you're cast down to the ground and before kings, they will see your downfall. They will see how you will be judged. We knew that couldn't have happened in the moment of his original fall. There were no kings. Hasn't happened between then and now that we know of, right? We haven't seen any point in history that we know of in which kings are mocking, openly recognizing Satan and mocking him. That has not happened. But there is this moment coming when he will be sent down to the ground. Yes, but it's deep in the ground. And that's the moment when kings of the earth will marvel at his predicament. Now you're going to ask me, what kings? How is this marveling going to take place? Who shares his fate in Hades? Well, all those who are unbelievers. And we hear a description in Isaiah of the moment that the kings who are in Hades watch Satan enter the pit of the abyss and mock him. It's in Isaiah 14. I'm going to read it. You might turn there and look at it if you're interested because it's interesting to look at the text, but it's Isaiah 14, verse 3. It's addressed to Israel. So this is similar in the sense of how Ezekiel uh, 28 is set up. Ezekiel 28, if you remember, is a text of judgment against Israel's enemies, which is meant to be a consolation to Israel in the midst of their own trial, right? Similarly, Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years earlier, but prophesied to the same events, is also in chapter 14 talking to Israel in a method of consolation about what's coming for their enemies. Okay, And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 14. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you, speaking to Israel, in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes against us. Sheol, listen, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. 
It arouses for you the spirits of the dead. All the leaders, hear that, the kings, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. So imagine now, there's some uh, rumor that spreads rapidly around hell and says, hey, something special is about to happen. You've got to get up and see this. Come on, guys, we haven't had this kind of excitement in a while. Let's go check this out. And then verse 10, it says, they, all these kings, will all respond and say to you, even you have been made as weak as we You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, so the Lord is telling Israel through Isaiah that in the day when Israel receives the glory of the kingdom that they are promised, that's how this passage started, in that day, in that time, their enemy will meet his fate. And in this passage, you have Satan being called the king of Babylon. Now, for those of you who have studied this from another perspective and and seen this as a description of the Antichrist's fall, I see them as one and the same. And here's why. Because in the last days of, of tribulation, Satan indwells the Antichrist. So they both come to their end simultaneously in the sense that the body is killed and Satan is, is, is uh, condemned. His body goes to Sheol. The, Satan's place is the pit. But they are essentially in the same general location. And apparently there's some opportunity for one to know about the other. You notice how that passage ended. It said, to the resistance of the pit. The pit is a description of the abyss. So I don't think there's any contradiction there. I'm just saying I think you can see it from both sides. Similar to the way the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre are a mixture. Okay? In any event, there's references here that clearly indicate this is Satan, and I'll show you that here in a minute. Satan is called the king of Babylon, which is similar to the way Ezekiel calls him the king of Tyre. Okay? In Ezekiel's text, he's the king of Tyre, and that becomes a type of the tribulation world power. Tyre is like Babylon will be in the last days. And in the same sense, the king of Tyre is like what the king of Babylon will be in the last days. The same enemy behind the scenes in Tyre is the same enemy who's behind the scenes for the Babylon of tribulation. He's always been the guy behind the scenes. So, to that king, the one who is king of Tyre, the one who will be king of Babylon, the one who's always there, there'll be a day, it says, when his oppression will cease, the Lord will break the scepter of the wicked, of his earthly dominions, in preparation for his son's return to earth to rule in the kingdom. You know, if you're going to have your son set up shop on earth and rule the world, you've got to get rid of the competition first. And that's the idea here. That the Lord will first break the power of the enemy and put the whole world at peace. You notice it said that? The whole world at rest, the whole world quiet. Uh, clearly that's not happened yet. So try to imagine a world without the enemy at work. No rebellion, no temptation to sin, and the worldwide response to that is joy, to the point that the trees are happy, that they're not going to be cut down, I guess, right? But then beneath the earth, it's a different scene. It's a scene of misery and gloating. Verse 9, Isaiah says, this is all still in Isaiah 14. Verse 9, Isaiah says, Sheol beneath is anxious to greet the arrival of Satan and probably the Antichrist who comes down as well. You have the room down there, if you will, taking pleasure in seeing this ruthless leader who, by the way, is ultimately the one who put them there. Right? If you think about it, he brought sin into existence, which brought it into their heart through Adam, and then he deceived them in their life. And, you know, at the end of the day, you trace everything back to Satan. And they kind of, by the time they're down there, they've figured that out. So their ruthless leader is now suffering in the same judgment that they are. And if the adage, misery loves company, has any truth at all, this is a, on a cosmic scale. So notice the description of how Satan gets to live down there. And the reason this description is so interesting is because it's a direct comparison to what Ezekiel has told us about his beginnings. In the beginnings, he had the best job in the universe, and he was adorned like a disco queen. Here, he's living in hell with maggots as his bed, and his covering now is worms. So the distinction, the contrast is intentional to show you how far he's fallen. In verse 12, the Lord says, Satan... Now, here's where you know it's talking about Satan. It's so clear in the Hebrew, and I'll show you that. Because in verse 12, the people in Sheol are saying, 
Look who's fallen from heaven, the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn. Now, at first, that phrase may seem odd because it almost sounds like he's talking about Jesus, right? Okay, but it's, it's a product of Hebrew. The morning star in the ancient world, regardless of who you're talking about, regardless of language, that's always a reference to what celestial body? What's the morning star? Venus. Venus is the morning star. Why? Because Venus is generally visible in the early morning light when it's light enough to see and all the other stars are gone, but there's still that one object you can see, which is Venus. Venus will still show itself. But Venus will stop shining the moment the sun rises because the sun is bright enough to eclipse the brightness of Venus. So it's a morning star only until the sun arrives. Hear that? It's only visible till the sun comes. For us, there's an antonym there that's not necessarily true in other languages, but it's a very convenient one for us in English. That is, the Bible refers to Satan as the day star because his light will shine in the world only until the Son of God returns. Okay, His glory, God's glory, will outshine Satan just as the sun outshines Venus. And by the way, the name Lucifer, translated out of Hebrew, is day star. The name Lucifer means day star. So in the text, it's clear that when it says the day star is brought down, it's saying, if you read it in Hebrew, it says Lucifer is brought down. Okay, This is a clear reference to Satan. So Isaiah 14.12 is saying that the crowd speaks to Satan about his fall, the day star being cut down. I mean, it's all mocking him, right? The one who thought he would be God. Look who came down here with us, right? It's, it's who do you think you are now? Verse 13, Isaiah reminds us of his fall, um, and in so, so doing, he repeats a piece of Ezekiel's own story. He says, Satan was thinking to himself he could ascend to the throne, he could sit on the mount of the assembly, become like the Most High, and yet here he is. Okay. Now, yes, does the Antichrist in his own form do similar things? Well, of course he does. That's just what Antiochus did in the time of, of the Greeks. It's always been Satan's M.O. to find some schmuck that he can use to position himself as the one that everyone worships. So yeah, the, the MO has never stopped being the way Satan works. At the very end, Satan and the guy get together and try to do it together. But they both end up in the same result. Okay, So that's the punishment Ezekiel's been speaking about. Jump back now. That's where we are in Ezekiel 28, back in verse 18. That's what he's talking about when he begins to look forward to the future punishment of this enemy of Israel. And he says, you'll be cast down. Kings will see you. They will be in horror at you. It's all looking forward to this moment near the end of tribulation and at the end of tribulation when the Lord begins to execute this judgment against him. And it says back in Ezekiel that the Lord brings forth fire from Satan's midst. Now you're in a better position to understand that. What it means is that from what Satan begins to do on earth, the Lord orchestrates Satan's downfall. From his midst, he brings the fire, which is a way of saying the judgment. From your midst, I bring the fire that will consume you. From the midst, I will bring the judgment that will consume you. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I thought that fire might just be the lake of fire. All right, well, that's coming, but you skip to that too quickly in the text. He, he mentions that in the final verse, but we're not there yet. He, he's starting with the description of how he gets consumed by judgment to begin with. And in that sense, he goes down to the, the abyss. Now, remember, the abyss for angels is just as hot as the... Uh, Hades uh, portion is for human beings. So he's in a fiery judgment even then as he's cast down and bound for a thousand years. In that sense, notice how it's written. It's very specific. It says he becomes ashes, but notice, in the eyes of all who see him. Well, that precludes us from thinking of him truly as becoming ash, that is, being destroyed. He's becoming ashes in the eyes of those who see him. That is, those on the Hades side are looking at him burning on the other side. The pit. But that's just the first part of his destruction. Verse 19, Ezekiel repeats that Satan will be appalled by all the peoples. But again, that cannot be speaking about today or any day in the past because the world as yet has not become appalled at Satan. In fact, in most cases, they either worship him directly or indirectly. And, and the rest just don't pretend he exists or they, they pretend he doesn't exist. So... Notice in the future then, all it says, all who know him among the peoples, or you could translate that, literally in Hebrew, you could translate that, all the creatures that know him will be able to look upon him and be appalled at his fate. And that would, by creatures here, what I'm referring to is the angelic realm as well. So both the angelic realm and the human realm look upon Satan, the one we now know to be our adversary, and we're appalled at what is happening to him. 
That day will come at the end of the thousand years, at the end of the kingdom. Remember, I I just read a minute ago, it said that he must be bound for a little while until the thousand years is complete, and then he would be released again for a short time. Well, at the end of the kingdom, this is what you hear happening, uh, verse 7 of Revelation 20, when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and, the fire, came, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Kind of an anticlimactic end to the big battle. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, uh, again, if this is not some area of Scripture you've studied a lot, and so we're, we're jumping into some things you have a lot of questions about, just take all that interest and direct it to the website and go listen to Revelation, and you'll get all the detail you need. For now, here's what you need to know. At the end of the thousand-year kingdom on earth, now we're talking here about a thousand years, literal years, of Christ on this earth again. That's why we say it's his second coming, because he comes back, and he's here physically, r- ruling over the whole of the earth. Nations are on this earth. The chief nation is Israel. It's in its proper place. But there are other nations of Gentile citizens. They have to be ruled. We are with him, ruling with him in the government. And this goes on for a thousand years. No Satan, no tempter. Everything's peachy keen. It's a great time. Then he gets let out. And if you're saying, well, why would you do that? That's not for us tonight. But he gets let out. And... He gets released, it says, for a short time, which then gives him opportunity to recruit from among those on the earth all who are unbelieving to join him in an army against Christ. And this army of... And if you're asking me at this point, well, where all the unbelievers are from, same answer. Go to the Revelation study online. The army of unbelievers rallies to his side because anyone who is an unbeliever is already on his side. They just didn't know it. Right? So they all have come to find their king, effectively. And they, by their unregenerate nature, they have no other instinct or desire except to follow after him. So they do. And that doesn't go very far or last very long. They all rally up and then they're gone. Like I said, it's the most anticlimactic end-of-the-world battle you've ever seen. You know, it's over before it starts. And Satan and his forces are defeated by fire from heaven. It's a brief moment. Then he's cast, as a result of that, cast into the lake of fire, especially prepared for him and his angels uh, and all humanity who is unbelieving at, at a later point. This is the place where he ceases to be forever. That's verse 19 in, in Ezekiel 28. When it says, you will cease to be forever, that is the specific reference to the lake of fire. Now, remember, the Bible describes the eternal lake of fire as the second death. But that terminology will confuse people. Because uh, death in the Bible is not a literal cessation of existence. It is an unending period of torment. We think of death from our side of the problem sitting where we are right now. All we see is people die and we don't see them anymore. And we come to conclude that death must mean the end of something. But that's because you only see half of what's going on. If you could see what happened after that moment from the other side, you'd realize death is not the end of anything. So... It's the first death and the second death are very similar in some respects. That's why they share the title. The second death is called the second death because, in a sense, it's the final resting place for the soul. Not the end of the soul, but the final resting place of the soul. It's similar to the sense that the first death is not the literal disappearance of the body. It's the resting of the body. Now, yeah, eventually the body does cease to exist, but that's because it's a physical object. The spirit is not physical. It doesn't have that kind of... It doesn't decay, okay? So the death process is separation, essentially. The, death, the first death separates your spirit from your body. The second death separates your spirit from God. Both of them are forever. In other words, you're never going to get your old body back, and you're never going to get God back at the second death. So... When you talk about somebody going into the lake of fire, ceasing to be forever, or the second death, all of those are references to being put in a place that will never release you, from which you can never return to God. That's why it's an eternal place of habitation. So in summary, the Lord ends his declaration of judgment against Tyre, which is the the city-state we've been studying now from chapter 26. He ends it with a promised reckoning for Israel's ultimate enemy. The Tyrians were 
thorns in the side of Israel because of their idolatrous influence on Israel and because of their persecution of Israel. But now what you have is confirmation that the real enemy, the enemy that was behind the scenes and behind all of those attacks, was Satan, and he gets his due also. Because it wouldn't make any sense, right, to prosecute the ones who were the victims of Satan themselves. You know, you've got to go back to the beginning. He was corrupting Israel through the influence of places like Tyre and, as we come to see now, Sidon. And in the time we have left, it's short, but we only have a short place to go. We're looking at the sixth of seven enemies now at the end of this chapter. It's the city-state of Sidon. And it's very short and it's similar. So that's why I can fit it in and we can just borrow from what we've already learned and use it. So let's look at verse 20. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon, prophesy against her, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will be glorified in your midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her, and I will manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence to her and blood to her streets, and the wounded will fall in her midst by the sword upon her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And there will be no more for the house of Israel a prickling briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. So this is a separate judgment against a new enemy, but so similar that obviously the detail is very abbreviated, which is good for us because we have 10 minutes. So Sidon, historically Sidon was Tyre's neighbor. It was about 20 miles to the north, also on the Lebanese border, um, present-day Lebanon. It was named after Canaan's first son. Remember, Canaan is a grandson of Ham. So coming off the boat, you got Ham, then Ham's son, then his grandson, who's Canaan. And Canaan's son was Sidon, one of them. And he settled this place. Sidon was a Phoenician city-state, but also a thorn in Israel's side, like Tyre. Uh, Asher, the tribe of Asher, was supposed to dispose both of Tyre and Sidon and take their land. And they didn't. And therefore, the gods of both the Tyrians and the Sidonians uh, ended up being cause for spiritual corruption in Israel uh, among the tribes. Historically, Sidon used to rival Tyre as the world's center of shipping and trade. It occupied a shoreline, though, not a little rocky island. So they were much more vulnerable. And when the Philistines would rampage up and down that coast, they destroyed the city at one point. And as they did, Sidon lost their place of prominence to Tyre. Later, Sidon was rebuilt, but by that point, Tyre had eclipsed their power. Later, Sidon is destroyed again by the Assyrians, but it rebuilt again. Then under the per- Now, all of that's prior to the time we're looking at now through Ezekiel. Ezekiel is post-Assyrian destruction. Okay, So you have Sidon now being judged by God at this point in history, after the rebuilding from Assyria. What comes next? When does the judgment actually take place? Well, under the Persians who come after Babylon, all right, Sidon is back to being prosperous. It actually reaches its height of power under the Persians. Uh, Sidonians were great shipbuilders, and the Persians depended on them for that resource. So the Persians had a great navy. That was their biggest, uh, that was their claim to fame. They had the navy of the, of the, of the world at that time. And the captain of the Persian fleet, pretty important guy, was the king of Sidon. So as a part of vassal of the, of the empire, he was a big player. But at a later point, he and, or his successor decides to rebel against the Persian empire and think they can do it on their own, go it alone. So um, that's when the judgment God is promising begins to take hold. And going to the text for a minute before we look at the history, you have the judgment beginning with the Lord saying, I'm going to put my purpose into this. It's going to have a purpose that is ultimately to glorify me. That is, the way I'm going to destroy this city will bring a testimony to all people of all time that you cannot mock or oppose God or corrupt my people without facing my judgment. And you'll remember this one, like he says to the other nations. And he responds, and in the end, Sidon fell, and the world knew that God did it. In verse 23, you hear the details of what he's going to do, just a little bit. He says it's going to be pestilence, blood in the streets, wounded falling, bad stuff. All right, but that doesn't really give us any detail, but we know historically what happened. Historically, the army of Persia brought this prophecy to fulfillment in response to the city's rebellion. When the city rebelled, King Artaxerxes Achus came against the Sidonians to force them into submission. And there was a Greek historian of the time who records what happened. That as his army approached, the citizens of Sidon locked up the, you know, they do what you'd expect. They locked the gates, send the alligators into the remote or whatever they had. And they just, there wasn't alligators, but anyway, they, they, they blockade themselves in 
and get ready for a siege, but they knew they'd lose. I mean, the, the Persian army. They, they knew they weren't going to stop the, the army. So the leaders of Sidon elected to implement a scorched earth policy rather than surrender to the Persians. So they set fire to their own city while they are locked up in it with all the people rather than fall to Aukas. And the inferno spread rapidly. It consumed the city. It induced panic in the streets. And the fire and the panic left 40,000 people dead and reduced the city to smoldering bloody mess. Uh, it never regained its power. And now even since then, the region has been inhabited. There's still a place in uh, Lebanon today that occupies the same location of Sidon. And it, it carries a slightly different name, but it's the same basic place. But still, it's never risen to its level of prominence again. No one ever cared about Sidon after the Persians ruined it. That's the legacy of God's judgment on this city. It continues to exist, but in keeping with his promise in verse 24, it's never again been a thorn in Israel's side. It's never even been a prick. It's never even been a, 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 something worth caring about. Okay, That ends the sixth oracle, really simply. right? The only one that remains now is Egypt. And Egypt becomes the seventh and last of the, of the enemies. It takes chapters 29 through 32. After that, we move into descriptions of the kingdom. Now, before we get to Egypt, there is a short intermission at the end of 28, which is what we do right now. Two more verses, that's it. And in this little intermission, it's kind of interesting how God does this. He's done it a couple of times already. We know where we're going, you and I. We know where we're going. We know that there's a coming period of this book, the whole second half. That's all glory, glory, glory. What God's going to bring to Israel. What the kingdom is going to be like. And that's what we're all really interested in, obviously. Uh, and yet, even now, as we're getting close to that, he keeps dropping these little hints that it's coming. So that the audience for Ezekiel has, I guess, a reason to keep listening after hearing so much judgment for this long. We heard one of these earlier moments when we got ready to start this section. And here we are about, not quite, a little over halfway through it. And he gives us another one. Verses 25 and 26, he says, Thus says the Lord God, When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, I will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely, and they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgments against all those who scorn them round about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. This is probably the shortest, most succinct description of Israel's life in the kingdom that you can find anywhere in the Bible. Thankfully, we get a lot more detail later. But in verse 25, the Lord simply says, I'm promising that the kingdom's appearance on earth will begin with a preparation step for the nation of Israel. That is, before God brings the kingdom for Israel to the earth, he brings Israel to the place where the kingdom will be. That is, he begins moving the people of Israel across the face of the earth toward the promised land in a regathering that will anticipate their king's arrival. That's the migration of Jews back to Israel. And that is the Bible's first sign that the kingdom promised to Israel is about to appear. The first sign in Scripture that says we are reaching the appointed end, when the king will come and the kingdom will be set up, is when you see a regathering of Israel. Now those words were written even as the nation was in the process of being scattered. Okay? And then in the centuries that followed, and here's where biblical prophecy can throw people off a little. In the years that followed, the nation has undergone a series of what I'll call mini-returns. And as a result, people look at some of those and think they may be the fulfillment of this. All right? So those mini-returns throw people off. They make people think that we've gone further in the plan of prophecy than we truly have. Uh, for example, you have one just 70 years after this prophecy is given. After, 70 years after they go into Babylon... There's a remnant that comes back with, with Zerubbabel, right? To rebuild the temple under Cyrus. But that many return, and others that are like it, that happen even after that, that is other times in later centuries where Israel is scattered or groups of Israel comes back, none of those fit the pattern here, so they can't be the fulfillment of this. In fact, it's so easy to get confused. You know, no less than Daniel himself gets confused about this very fact? Well, Daniel sits in Babylon. Remember, he's in Babylon with Ezekiel. When he sits in Babylon... After about 70 years of time in captivity, he's an old man now. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9 of Daniel. He tells us he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he reads the passage in Jeremiah, which mirrors the one we just read here. Only in Jeremiah, there's a date given. God says he'll return Israel to its land after 70 years. As Daniel reads that promise, he makes it a bad assumption. He assumes that that coming return after 70 years is the return that precedes the kingdom. 
In other words, he mistakes that mini-return for the return, okay? For the massive worldwide return. And as a result, he begins, in chapter 9, it's kind of a funny moment, he begins praying to the Lord in anticipation of the kingdom, asking for forgiveness of Israel's sins, knowing that the king was about to return. And he's so esteemed in heaven that God sends the angel Gabriel to Daniel to say, I've got I to tell you, buddy, you're on the wrong track here. Uh, let me explain how this is really going to work. And because of that exchange, we now know that it's actually many centuries and, and thousands of years later that we'll see this return, not in Daniel's lifetime at all. So how do I know which is a real return and which is a mini-return? The, the distinctions uh, between those two come down to the degree of return and the occasion of the return. So the return of Israel before the kingdom, according to what we just read, and according to like passages and other prophets is a return of all Israel. It's a degree of such that it leaves no Jew out. All Jews on earth end up in the land of Israel or else they perish before the king's return. At the coming of Christ, they're all there. Okay, There'll be no other population of Jews on earth besides those in Israel who are waiting for their king. Uh, there's a little asterisk next to that that I'm not going to get into for the sake of time. Notice in verse 25, the Lord says plainly, He gathers the house of Israel. Back in our land. That description points to all of the nation, not just a representative group. So here we are today with some in Israel and some out. We have not reached the point yet where the kingdom can come, but there's a lot of reasons why that's true. But that just is one of them. Secondly, the occasion of their return must be very specific. And they, uh, the occasion is to greet the king's arrival. The regathering that we're talking about here leads to the Lord, it says, notice in the text, manifesting his holiness in their sight. And that's what we just read in Ezekiel. That's never happened in any of the earlier gatherings, which would mean that none of them are the regathering. So in a day to come, the Lord says, all the house of Israel will find their way back to the land of Israel, and once they are all assembled in the land of Israel, the glory of the Lord will appear, leading to the appearance of their kingdom. And of course, if the kingdom's appearing, so is the king. All right. So as we look at history, you find all these mini regatherings, like the one of Zerubbabel, like the ones that followed the persecutions of the Romans in the first and second centuries, but none of those led to the Lord showing His holiness, much less to the kingdom being set up, and they didn't include all Jews. So they're not the, the regathering we're talking about. But you and I are still looking for this fulfillment, all right? And the return of Israel to her land began from a worldwide context at the end of the 19th century. It picked up steam in the 20th century, and it's continuing to today. In fact, it's only been recently, in the last year or two, that the population of Jews living in Israel has exceeded the total number of Jews living outside Israel worldwide. So, the tipping point, we've just gone over half. That is a remarkable accomplishment when you think about it. And it's a sign that the Bible says is the first of signs to come that tell us that we are coming to the end of the age and that the kingdom is nigh. So we may be studying events in this book that are from the distant past, uh, a book written from thousands of years ago, but we are seeing the signs that were given now, I mean, in the recent decades and centuries. You're watching fulfillment of the first part of verse 25, which means the rest of it has to come soon, soon relatively. And after they're regathered, the Lord comes. But here's the thing. When the Lord returns on that moment, where are you? With Him. Revelation 19 says we accompany Him on that return. So you're not going to miss it. Don't worry. In verse 26, to end tonight, we're told the Jews will live in their promised land peacefully and securely. That's another proof that we're still waiting for this prophecy and no prior regathering can qualify because the Jews, though they've come back in the past, they've never had a peaceful existence. They're not even till today. That's one of the hallmarks of the kingdom age. If you've ever had any kind of conflict with someone who thinks that perhaps the kingdom is already here, take them to passages that say, God promises the kingdom will be Israel living in peace and security. Ain't happening right now, okay? And by the way, to be sure you know what peace means, he defines it in the rest of verse 26. Enjoying the land. It's not peace in your heart, it's enjoying the land. No threat from around you, he says. None of your neighbors. Okay, that's clearly not the case. That's the day we all want. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Let's pray and and go on with our night. Heavenly Father, as John prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we know you come for your church first and then judgment for the world, Father, so we... Fear none of these things, knowing that you have us securely in your hand. By your grace, we have uh, been saved from from the condemnation uh, that we deserved, uh, but we'll never see. 
Father, we thank you, Lord, for that, that privilege. But we ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart that wants to seek for a world that needs to know these same things so that we would not keep these to ourselves, these things. For if we are truly living at a time when the end of the age is coming, then every day counts, even more than it ever did. So, Father, help us to learn, but help us to, to teach, help us to understand, but help us to share and explain to others. Let us have that kind of heart. Uh, and, Father, not to think that we are incapable of these things because it's not our skill or our calling. Father, those aren't the things you ask of us. You just ask us to go because you'll do all the hard work. So uh, give us a heart that wants to go to our neighbor, to our friend, to our family member, to the other side of the world, whatever you call us to do. And we ask these things, Father, knowing that you've been faithful to teach from the beginning of this study. And so we ask, Lord, you'll continue in that to the end of this study. Bring us back in weeks to come. Thank you for our, uh, the privilege and the, and the provision of having a place to, to meet and for people who want to hear your word, Father. And just let us continue in that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.